Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of science and spirituality. This week, we are going to talk about divination, both about some of its history, how we use divination in our own practice, and also kind of the scientific validity of specific types of divination. But before we get into that, I'm going to pass over to Fel, who will do our What Happened on This Day. And today is May 30th, 2021. So Fel, go ahead. All right. So lots of things happened on this day. Pierre-Marie Fili, Janet was born in 1859. Pierre was a French psychopathologist and neurologist influential in bringing about in France and the United States a connection between academic psychology and the clinical treatment of mental illness. He stressed psychological factors in hypnosis and contributed to the modern concept of mental and emotional disorders involving anxiety, phobias, and other abnormal behavior. Janet is remembered for his dissociation theory of hysteria and hypnosis, he introduced the words dissociation and subconscious into psychological terminology and attributed hysteria and hypnotic susceptibility to inherited dispositions towards imbalances in psychic energy and psychic tension. One of the first formal acknowledgments of the heritable or genetic basis for mental ill health. And then also uh, a patent for ice cream freezers. Very important. The most important. The most important thing. Out of everything that happened. Let's just jump in as per usual and talk about divination. So the first question that we need to kind of cover is, what is divination? Is there a defined definition for it that we use within the community? So the one I found was seeking knowledge of the future through supernatural means. It comes from the Latin divinare, um, which means to foresee, to foretell, to predict or to prophesize. And it's related to um, understanding from the divine, although this definition would kind of change slightly over time. There are some interesting links to mysticism. Yeah, I was actually reading a paper the other day where it was talking about divination and the author, M. Fortis, wrote their thesis on this. It was published by the Royal Society and he had a different definition, but I think it spoke very clearly to the purpose that most of us use divination for. So I'm going to quote it here. And it's that divination is the central feature of a system of religion or magic. It is the ritual instrument and in turn a technique by means of which a choice is made from among the total ritual resources of a community of the right ritual measures for a particular occasion and with regard to individual circumstance. And I really liked that definition because I think it's true in that we utilize divination on very specific occasions or at least for a very specific like purpose pertaining to like an individual circumstance. So I thought that was really interesting. And then he also made another intriguing note suggesting that perhaps one of the most important functions of a divination lies in the authority that it carries. And so a confirmed like divination verdict is essentially an authorization or like a sanction emanating from the ultimate source of authority in that matter. And that could be, you know, the divine or your subconscious, kind of depending on what you think the divination is coming from or like what's influencing it. But I also thought that was really interesting. And it's something that I think we should touch upon really quickly maybe at the beginning of this episode is the maybe over-reliance on divination as kind of the ultimate authority. What are all of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think I'll talk about this later um, in terms of my personal experience with it, but I have definitely fallen into the trap of doing too much divination. And I think it comes from, at least for, for, from my perspective, a sense of kind of anxiety around the choosing the, the right choice. And so when you mentioned that kind of idea of authority it's almost as if you can give that choice over to a higher authority than yourself and absolve yourself of the need to make that choice so yeah I do think that that it can be a sort of a guilty pleasure or a trap of some kind even though it can be very useful in other ways yeah I agree I think that a lot of times when I see this more with like yes no divination which is why I actually tend to stray away from that kind this idea that like the yes or the no that you receive is the exact answer that you're looking for and a lot of people give it an authority because they think it's unbiased which we'll actually get into this later how typically the modes of yes no divination are biased just in subconscious manners that you don't necessarily realize and so yeah I think that leaving kind of these big choices to some yes no thing that really occurs by random chance is just kind of irresponsible and I don't think like it also just it means that you're not holding yourself responsible for the things that happen in your life you can say well 
I did this divination and I was told to do this thing. And if it turns out poorly, then you don't have to take any accountability, which I think is an escapist type of mindset. I don't think it serves anybody well. For sure. I mean, I used to be like when I was in college, I was like going through a really rough time and I was just like so addicted to it, like every day, multiple times a day or like you ask the same question (laughs) and you wanted to give a different answer. One time I did that. Basically, it was just like, no, stop it. (laughs) Yeah. So it definitely you could definitely can't do it too much or, or I mean, I don't even do a lot of divination anymore, really, at least not in. A traditional sense but I think definitely doing it too much is uh, very common I do kind of laugh at when because like I mean I'm guilty of doing this like no shade to anybody doing divination of some sort getting an answer and then like not not liking the answer and so you go back and you're like yeah give me a different answer um my tarot cards are so mean and like this is the tarot cards are actually doing this. I'm like giving them a personality here and they will just like throw it right back at me. I've pulled the same cards before when I tried this and it was like, this was my answer. Like you can't get away from the fact that you are like putting yourself in a shitty situation. And I was like, okay, I didn't need to be called out like that twice. Not just once, twice. You had to call me out twice with the same cards. Like how rude, but I digress. So do we want to talk about like forms of divination? Because really it's, it's just some kind of standardized process, which is used to tell the future, but that can be, that can be anything really. Right. So what are your favorite kinds? Because I, I was looking at methods and I found so many interesting ways. Um, everything from like scrying to runes to um, shufflemancy and rumpomancy, which is using someone's, uh, the shape of someone's bottom to define the future. Um, so I was just curious what your favorites were. Just to decide here, if you type in like divination in Wikipedia, you will get a page that is just full, like a list of all the different types of divination that have been done. And it's really fun to just scroll through and see what people have done. Some of my favorites are heraspexy uh, or heraspex, where you look at the entrails of something. That was very common in, in Greece. There's also cheese divination, which was a form of divination in the Middle Ages. Oh, it's so fun. I honestly think, or knucklebone divination. There are so many cool forms of divination I think we ought to bring back. <laughs> that's just that's just my, or like sneezing. That was a huge thing in ancient Greece as well. If you sneeze, it was considered like that whatever you were sneezing, that there was something in there that was a sign. I think that this happens in the Odyssey, I'm pretty sure, where Telemachus, yes. Telemachus is Odysseus' son because there's also Telegonus. It gets confusing. Telemachus sneezes and Penelope's like, oh. <laughs> That's my impression of Penelope. I'm going to get murdered by Odysseus in my sleep. (laughs) In terms of the forms of divination, actually, it varies pretty heavily for me. That's actually one of my favorite parts of divination is that I can vary what I'm doing based on the working that I'm doing. So tarot is probably the method that I use the most, but that's really only because I utilize it for insight into like daily life kind of situations or just like I do a tarot poll every single day regardless of whether I have a specific question or not just to continue familiarizing myself with the cards I typically do it at the end of the day um I kind of just like will focus and like think about maybe meditate on the energies from the day any frustrations that I had um so on and so forth I can use tarot to help with that um when performing ceremonial magic I tend to use more traditional forms of divination including scar- uh, scrying Fire scrying is my favorite. It has been my favorite for a long time, Um, but it's really terrible for your eyes, so you shouldn't do it all that often. And it can be kind of difficult to read with fire scrying if you're not, like, using the same candles or whatever you're utilizing, because then you don't have, like, you have a baseline. So, like, I use the same candles when I do fire scrying, just so that I have a baseline, so if something does change, I can like catch that i've also cast lots using items that hold particular symbolism in my life for more personal readings i don't do that quite as frequently um but there have been a couple of times where that's been really useful back in university and this is something i think people hear and they don't give a lot of credit to but especially for witches that can't come out yet and be like open about their practice i think bibliomancy is a fantastic form of divination to do because it can be really easily concealed. So back in university, this was the case for me. I had to kind of keep my witchcraft quiet for many reasons, but I used bibliomancy at that time for divination. And the fun thing about bibliomancy is that you can literally use anything. You can use any book. 
And what I chose depended a lot upon the question that I asked. One of the most notable experiences, and this is going to be really nerdy and just listen, I'm weird. Okay. I was in the midst of failing an organic chemistry class, my first go around, and I performed bibliomancy on my organic textbook. Now, the resulting conclusion came from a discussion of amines and how they act as essentially a kitchen sink for electrons. We were talking about it in terms of an enzymatic mechanism. And it made me think about the way in which I was approaching the class. And after I like thought about it and reflected on it, I ended up kind of changing the way I approached it and things began to look up. I did still end up with a C, so like it didn't look up that much. It only mildly helped, but I didn't fail and that was all that I cared about. But yeah, so those are the ways that I have used divination in my personal practice. And again, it varies pretty heavily depending on what I'm doing. But what about you guys? I have really like shitty intuition. <laughs> I'm just going to come out and say like, you, you hear about all these people um, reading Psychic Witch and all, all this and like have, using their intuition to decide things. I am not somebody who can do that. I, I think maybe it comes from just being quite an anxious person, but I'm always kind of second guessing. I like, I, rather than use a method which is yes, no, I prefer something with more symbolism, which I can read in a more... Uh, I want to say holistic way like I can read into the symbolism I can connect it to the questions that I'm asking and uh, I guess it feels more kind of overall meaningful meaningful that way and I'm also not becoming quite as addicted to the process so I really like tarot for that reason I really like that it has such a rich history in symbolism has elemental symbolism numerological symbolism I know that some people actually map it onto the tree of life so it's just a, a system that has a lot to explore and I even know people who are like completely secular who use tarot and when I say secular I don't mean like a modern witchcraft type secular I mean like if I said I was into the occult they'd ask me like a cult? Are you in Scientology? Kind of thing. <laughs> like, they're, they're, they're like properly, but, but they still use tarot because they find it meaningful. So I think it has a, a really broad appeal and I definitely tapped into that. I have tried some other things like bone throwing, but I'm really not good at it again. I think it's the, the lack of intuition. So I usually just stick with tarot. I mean, like tarot is a classic, right? Um, another form though that I've started getting into is the Homeric Oracle, which I believe is found in the PGM. And you roll a six-sided dice three times and it will, there's like a whole chart too. And it's like different bits from the Odyssey or the Iliad. And what's really fun is a lot of the things are just like super cryptic. And there, it's like I've done some of the other casting of lots, which they're also like super cryptic. Like the alphabet oracle where to be like, it will be a good marriage. And you're like, okay, that's cool. Some people have just like really deep analysis of it. But a lot of it is like really pushing you to do that inner look it's it's like that's why like i never define divination as telling you the future because i don't really use it like that it's more of an inward thing where it helps it's a point of focus and like i actually have a pretty not to tap my own horn but i feel like i have a pretty strong intuition so i don't actually do divination all that much mostly when i just at like the end of a big ritual or as like a part of something i used to do a lot of like dream so i i don't even know if i would consider dream work divination like a lot of for me is like dream stuff where like people will show up in dreams i even get other people's (laughs) things that they worship showing up to me in dreams and i'm like okay (laughs) so i do like a lot of it more more internally than relying on cards i also make my own oracle cards which is fun. when you come out with your deck i want a copy okay Annie, what's your thoughts on using divination as like fortune telling i have mine but i want to hear your opinion first (laughs) I think it depends. So yeah, I think we we kind of alluded to this, like divination can have lots of different purposes, different people. So yes, it is telling the future, but for some people it can be more self-reflection and for some people it can be more about connecting to the divine. And for some people it can be actual, like looking for answers, like yes, definite yes, no answers about a particular thing. And I think the latter is where it can be the most limited because there are so many different futures and so much of it depends on your own circumstance that it can be quite quite difficult to give a meaningful yes no answer for another person. I think a good a good reader is going to give you kind of a, a more holistic view if they do a, a reading for somebody else. So I feel like I personally wouldn't benefit from getting a reading from somebody else because I'm not interested in looking for a particular outcome. I'm really more interested in my relationship with the divine and maybe self-reflection. But I mean, I think other people have, uh, they're, they're obviously getting value from it in some way. What do you think? 
I don't like the idea that divination is used for fortune telling. And the reason why I say that is because it leads this impression that whatever is is read in the reading is like what will happen. And that's not the case. Like Hanny mentioned, there's multiple possibilities. And what, what divination to me, especially like tarot and typically the forms of divination that kind of outline like a, if you continue down X route alongside the question that you asked, like this is what will happen. It's more of a probability thing. Like this is the most probable outcome if this happens type of deal. But it's not like a defined this will happen type like thing um, because it can be so easily influenced by just like changes in anything. I mean, in decisions, like all of that can have an effect on the initial outcome and the result of your question outside of like the reading itself. So because of that, I don't like to say that it is fortune telling because it's not like it's not giving you a definitive answer. And again, I think with, you know, yes or no type methods of divination, it can be really misleading. And in those cases, I just, man, I don't like, <laughs> I don't like those words for so many reasons. But that's also the reason why, like, when you talk to people who work with pendulums, um, I often hear them say, like, you should really only, like, ask yes, no questions with pendulums or, like, other methods of yes, no divination. And I get, like, why they say that. But at the same time, it's like you're asking a definitive question. You're getting a definitive, definitive, you know, quote, in quotes, answer. But you're also, like, not. Because it's definitive according to what I think is my question. Like, I don't know. But yeah, I don't like saying that it, it really is like a fortune telling technique because I don't. I think of tarot much more as a guidance and that's how I use like that's how I use it in my practice. It's more of a this is the situation I have and this is what I'm thinking. I either want more insight or I want guidance into how I should handle it moving forward. And then I take what the cards say and I apply that however I see fit. Yeah, I'm with you, Hanny, though. Like my intuition sucks. So <laughs> that's why I use tarot mostly as guidance. Um, so I realized that um, I accidentally skipped over this beautiful cultural write-up that somebody has uh, somebody has um, contributed. <laughs> so I wondered if you wanted to return to that before we move on. So I was just looking into like the different ways divination was used in different cultures. I'll let you two speak to the Oracle of Delphi because Delphi, Delphi, how? I don't, I don't even know because I can't attest to that quite as much. But in the paper I mentioned earlier by M. Fortis, that paper was on the Talensi, who are a people in Ghana, Africa. And it was talking about their form of divination. And they primarily used it for contact with their ancestors. And they did it by tossing lots, essentially. And it's the means by which the demands of their ancestors were determined. They believe that anything that happens is brought about by the ancestors. So like the idea is that the ancestors, instead of living on like a separate plane of existence, they live in our world. They just exist as spirits versus as like physical people. Um, and so anything and everything that happens to these people is the result of the ancestors. And so you can understand the demands of the ancestors by like how the lots are thrown. And it can also be used to discover which ancestor an event can maybe be attributed to. It was all very, very interesting. And if you're curious to hear, to read more about it, I would highly recommend go reading that paper. But there are also other examples of divination. In the Bible, there's many different, <laughs> different examples um, I think the clearest one, again, with casting lots is when the remaining 11 disciples after Judas had betrayed Jesus, they cast lots to select the next member of their group. Specifically, this is located in Acts 1, 23 through 26. And then there's also allegedly, we don't know this for sure, but allegedly it's said that St. Francis, who is the founder of the Franciscan order, used bibliomancy along with Brother Benard to determine how they were to live. So allegedly the regular Primitiva, primitiva, primitiva. You know, I speak Latin. You think that I would know how to pronounce this. Or the rules of living were divined by asking a question, opening the Bible three in like three random places. And then the first passage their eyes landed on were like what led to the development of these rules, which I found very interesting. <laughs> and if that's the case, it like puts into question the stock of those rules, but I digress. And we also touched upon in our last episode. But Pythagoreanism believed that numbers, right, were the basis of the entire universe, which ran on this numerical harmony. So a combination of the numerical specifics of musical sound combined with numbers related to mysticism, specific meanings which are still held to today, were also a form of divination. It's, it's numerology and, and arithmancy in modern day. So a lot of these, these forms of divination like, do have really interesting histories. 
those are just different ways in which they were used throughout history. And I definitely like recommend looking into this more because even looking into like the history of tarot is really fascinating given it was a card game, you know, when it was originally developed and then how it began, began to be used for like divinatory techniques. Yeah, those are all the examples that I like thought of for this episode, but there's definitely plenty others. Fel, I wondered if you had any interesting historical examples to contribute. You mentioned the sneezing one. That was actually new to me, which is uh, embarrassing. But. <laughs> yeah, the sneezing one. I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, what people don't understand about like oracles, so, like the Oracle of Delphi, right? There are, at least in a Hellenic perspective, there can not be any modern day oracles because oracles are place driven. The oracles are always the oracles of something, right? So you get all these people. I've seen people claim to be a Pythia before. And I'm just like, first of all, the Pythia were like 50 years old. (laughs) They weren't like young women. They were old. (laughs) Also, they were like very political. Delphi was very political. (laughs) A lot of evidence of them being like bought off. And I'm just like, no one wants to be a Sybil, but okay. Sybils were like the wandering oracles. So I think that there's definitely a difference between like what the Oracle of Delphi was doing. I mean, the Oracle of Delphi would also like cast lots for like non-important questions or if people couldn't, yeah, like the lines for Delphi were like massive. And most of the time it was just casting lots, which she did most of the day. But yeah, casting lots was a huge thing. I think usually it was knuckle bones, knuckle bones of some, some type of prey animal. I don't know if there was a really exact thing. I've seen pottery shards too, broken pottery. People would write alphabet things on it. I mean, there's just loads of divination from historical, usually like dice and things that you can roll. It's usually like drawing or casting lots, which is something polyhedral with writing on it. So that's a huge, a huge thing or like really weird. Yeah. So I think those are pretty much the like, for anything that could be turned into something divinatory was turned into something divinatory is basically my understanding of it. I agree it was huge. Yeah, I agree. Birds, yeah. I think it's so interesting. And this kind of relates back to our Built for Divinity episode, right? Like why anything that could be used for divination was eventually like turned into something that could be used for divination. And I think it goes back to this idea of like we have this innate desire to have guidance outside of ourselves for how we live our life. And, you know, having some kind of like larger force <laughs> help like help us with the decisions that are really, really difficult to make. Um, I'd be curious to maybe look into that further, like just myself to see if there is any connection. But Hannah, you were going to say something too. Yeah, so I feel I thought it was really interesting that um, divination kind of used to be considered a science. Uh, like Fel mentioned, it's quite political. It was very frequently used for political decisions. It was it was treated quite highly, and um, people would consult, for example, oracles before going to war. They would look for auspicious signs before um, trade, things like that. It was it was really considered um, quite. A robust way of determining things and it even had close associations with medicine but I thought it was interesting that as the scientific method developed um, kind of beginning around the 13th century um, we started to see a divergence in science and divination and we started to kind of formalize knowledge and methodologies and we started to think of divination um, as less for looking for causes, so saying, okay, the stars are aligned this way, so this this is causing this event, you know, the comet's here, this is causing this event, and more like the divination is a sign that something might happen. Um, and then this was also viewed closely with medicine because you would see the same signs in the diagnostic process in medicine, and it would be viewed as the same thing. So you'd say, okay, well, if you have this symptom, this thing will happen. If you have this divinatory sign, this thing will happen. It was that same kind of logic. Um, it's called scientia conjecturalis. And because it was developing in a kind of more scientific way, not maybe how we understand science now, but more scientific, that also opened it up to critique, which is strange. So as early as the 1400s, we had people um, criticizing it. There was one one man called uh, Jean Gerard who said, one may indeed object that astrologers have correctly predicted many events. To this, however, I shall reply that in many more cases, they have given wrong predictions. When they tell the truth, it is either by chance or due to the great number of predictions they make. So there were doubts being cast on divination as early as um, the 1400s. And I think this is when it started to become more occult because we had this divergence of science and kind of more magical or religious adjacent things and so I think that's that's kind of interesting because the association with the occult has um maybe made it a little less popular just a random note 
I think that we can say that weathermen are just basically people who do divination because they're also wrong like 70% of the time. What, what is anyway. the name for that? Because there's, there's there's five main types. It was like geomancy, py- pyromancy, what, aeromancy? Yeah. Would that be, would they be aeromancers? Aer- I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Another way that it was like linked, like you mentioned it being linked in medicine, I just remembered, just thought about the uh, Greek incubation, the like incubus, where to read like a definition, uh, incubation is religious practice of sleeping in a sacred area with the intention of experiencing a divinely inspired dream or cure. So usually we go to like a temple of Paian or a temple of Asclepius and they would, you know, ha- have a nice bath, get looked after, and then you would go to sleep with an, and an attendant would be like nearby so that way, the second you woke up, you would tell them your dream. And it was supposed to be like the cure to your disease would come to you in a dream, which I think is fascinating. I mean, even at the time, how did I just... Hippocrates. How did I forget his name? <laughs> it's literally Hippocratic Oath. Hippocrates like was critical of, of some of those practices. Because some of those practices were... I'm just like, wow. If I had some weird disease and I went to bed and I woke up and be like... Ah. I got it. So I think that's kind of funny. And I kind of wonder how many times it worked because it was a super popular process, which makes me think that it worked at least a few times. Otherwise, why would they keep doing it? I would be curious to see that. Maybe they, they were cured by being at the spa because you said it was like quite a nice experience. That's the other thing. <laughs> yeah, they would give like they had the baths. Yeah, they would specifically do like healing baths. Be in a place with nice air quality. They probably had things to eat. <laughs> nice water or specifically those baths were set up in very specific areas so yeah there definitely was probably something to that as well yeah so let's maybe move into the next topic which is how we think divination is occurring like what the theory is behind them i'm curious does anybody have like personal theories about what they think is actually happening because like there's there's lots of theories in general right like some people say that it's spirit some people say it's your subconscious some people say it's actual like divinity um some people claim it's psychic ability and other things so what are what are your personal thoughts i don't usually share my personal theory because i'm always just like i don't think it's fleshed out enough but i think part of it is subconscious for sure i mean like i said i don't actually do a lot of divination anymore and a lot of it feels more like turning inward it's like i don't really use divination to communicate with divinity if that makes sense there are for that I, I more look for signs or like other forms of like external divination like I don't use like classic divination I guess for that I'll use like dreams and whatnot because to me a lot of like candle divination I think I brought this up in our first episode where to me there's so like I want to re- remove external internal sources I guess so like that's why I don't use pendulums because there's too many factors externally that are affecting it. And like, I don't know, I guess in some ways, part of me gets not to talk about quantum, but it gets to be like, well, this happened. Or like, if everything happens for a reason, then this thing happened for a reason. And and I don't know, it's like a weird game of chance. But the chance is purposeful, I guess. That's why I also don't do yes, no divination, because I find that there's elements there. I don't know. I don't think that makes any sense at all. Can I ask you? So you say that you like, the dreams are a big part of how you do divination, yeah. right? So where do you think the dreams come from? Like, do you consider those sent from the divine? Do you think it's more you're just sub- your subconscious talking to you? Like, what what are your thoughts there? So, okay. I guess it's kind of like, not to use like an L. And like, I don't physically or literally think this is what's happening. But this is like the vibe that I kind of, I don't know. The image that comes to mind when I think of this. It's almost like the divinity or entity or spirit is touching a pool and the ripples of the pool is what is so it's like they're not giving me the deep dream but it's almost like something reaching out when a chill passes through you they're not physically i'm gonna give felicity a dream today <laughs> it's yeah I'm, it's, I'm struggling to come up with an analogy but yeah it's kind of like the, that's the image that comes most to my mind is touching a pool and like the ripples and the echoes and the reflection almost like they're passing through my space and the dream is my own subconscious way of interpreting that. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, okay. I'm glad that makes some sense. Well, now that I've shared my theory, <laughs> here's some others. I asked the question, so Hanny, it's your turn. Yeah, I, I really don't know. Like, I, I was kind of writing these different theories out, and I was thinking, which one of these do I subscribe to? For me, it's not psychic ability. Well, that one's thrown out. Um, I don't think it's completely subconscious either. Like I do feel whenever I do divination that there is something external. And even when 
I mean, I went through a really bad phase and this was partly because I mentioned I have OCD and I was really like flipping coins for everything. I mean, we are talking like I couldn't walk down the street without like flipping a coin to decide which way I'd go. It was it was quite bad. Um, But then I had this feeling that sometimes the coin that I had in my hand was that was a trickster coin. Uh, So I was like, I would like switch to a new coin. So I guess that would fit with the spirit theory. But it just got to the point where I, I, I was not vibing with this method because it was so addictive and so messed up for me personally. With tarot, I, I definitely use it in a ritual context differently to how I would use it in a normal divinatory context. So I would use it after a ritual, for example, to try and maybe make sense of the experience that I just had. And I'll look more at the symbolism there. So that to me is more divine inference and maybe some subconscious as well to try and make sense of my own experience when I'm asking more kind of general questions or doing like a daily pull I tend to think of it as asking and this is gonna sound a bit lame but like the universe I, I don't really know I, I'm asking something there's there's there is some external force but I don't think that the, of it as a particular god or a particular anything saying this out loud makes me sound a bit crazy so I I apologize but I've just never had to really substantiate my um, ideas behind it before yeah I I think it's primarily subconscious but at the same time I think about all of the like all of the tarot card pulls that I've done relating to a situation then this is different actually depending upon the, the method of divination which is an interesting aside they're too accurate in my opinion to simply be through subconscious alone and it re- it also requires like chance, right? Like picking the right cards because I don't do like the one, whichever one falls out or any of that. Like I spread them and I, I select cards. And I also don't do the whole thing where I like hold my hand over it. And I'm like, oh, which one is like speaking to me? No, I literally just pick a card. And every single time that I've asked a question and done that, I always get answers that fit the situation incredibly well. And I have a difficult, like logically, I would love to say, yes, it's just my subconscious. Like there is no higher power, like guiding me, whatever. But like, I don't actually feel that way. I do think that something is leading me to the cards to like give, provide guidance in a situation. I do think using like things, something like a pendulum, that's definitely like much more subconscious based just because of some of the studies that we'll talk about a little bit later. I mean, like my own personal views, but like when it comes to other things like fire scrying specifically, yes, there are physical things you have to, to like take care of, but that's also why I establish a baseline. It's why I utilize the same candles from the same company, usually from the same pack. Like I really try my best to establish like a standard burning. And if something changes, then that's an indication to me, okay, maybe I'm seeing something in the flame. That I would say has more divine intervention, but even then I can, I know from bias, like I can be reading into the flame. So I also have to keep that in mind, which is why I tend to do fire scrying in a much more ritualistic setting where I like invoke an entity and like, I'm also like with their assistance reading into the flame, try and like reduce that bias. But I'm kind of like, I think it's subconscious mostly, but I do think there's some like <clears throat> divine guidance. I actually, Felicity, I really liked your touching the pool and the ripples because you could almost think of it like the ripples being the divine interference in a way where it's like not super yes, no, or like black and white. It's kind of this like gray, like the idea is like there being sent from something else, but like it's also your subconscious playing a role. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And it's like, that's one of the reasons why I don't like pendulums. Um, I don't remember I brought this up before. I bring it up everywhere I go, though. I don't like pendulums. <laughs> because it's, I don't know, people will be like, is Aphrodite in the room? And then I'll be like, yes or no. And like, that's so binary. Also, what a weird question. It's, it's very <laughs> spiritualist, actually. Like, it's more like a seance. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, pen- I, I was doing a little bit of research into the history of pendulums because I was curious and nothing. Nothing. I can find nothing about them used for anything other than dowsing. My educated guess, because I don't have any evidence for this. Before you go on, do you want to explain what dowsing is really quickly for people? So dowsing is finding water. Usually usually water, uh, sometimes other objects, like something physical people use to find lost things. You would hold the pendulum and how it swung would indicate how far away. It's kind of like hot. Have you ever found someone's like hot or cold? Hotter, colder. Basically like that, but with another tool. Traditionally, you would have a rod for dowsing, right? Like it, it, it kind of swings in front of you and then it's Yes, kind of there's also dowsing rods. Uh, pendulums were either used to measure seismic, I 
think seismic activity, they were also used for dowsing, pretty much. Uh, or clocks. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why it's weird to me that they just suddenly became a divination tool. And, like, every website I went on was like, pendulums have been used as a divination for centuries. I'm like, but have they? <laughs> Nowhere I found says that they were. And, like, even on the Wikipedia article, which is, like, not a great source, but it would... All of the uh, like discussion about it being for divination, like most of the history of the pendulum on there is about it being used for dowsing or science. <laughs> but even like dowsing, like the, like the dowsing rod, there is there's like physical like explanations from physics as to why the dowsing rod works the way it does. In fact, I can link an article below right. from Nature about the physics behind the dowsing rod. Like it wasn't. Right supernatural like there are mundane reasons as to why it works the way it does like there's nothing supernatural right. about it but yeah it, uh, my educated guess though is and like again thanks for the grain of salt but my educated guess is just because a lot of the times like things like automatic writing or um like spirit boards came about during the spiritualist movement as a form of divination there's a lot of evidence or a lot of cases of things that were not originally used for spirit contact suddenly becoming used for spirit contact so that's where i honestly think pendulums became used in divination just because i've never seen any evidence like otherwise and they just like materialized yeah speaking of pendulums and why i don't like them, <laughs> a lot of people who use pendulums are probably familiar with this as like a way to kind of disprove you know the pendulum and why you shouldn't use it and whatever is these this idea motor effect so a lot of people claim, well, some might claim that this is useful when examining one's subconscious. And I think that's where it's probably the most useful. Essentially, the idea motor effect is saying that you can't, like the swing of the pendulum is due to like your muscle movements. And so subconsciously, you're deriving the movement in the direction that you desire based on the answer that you want. And so there have actually been a number of articles, and I'll list, oh, I think I had three of them below saying studying the chevril pendulum illusion and some include some actually like empirical data that focuses on the pendulum itself and this idea of visualizing whether visualizing movement causes the swing of a pendulum to start continue or grow larger and one of the articles in particular i know said they use a photographic like capturing methodology and um they were able to show that by like visualizing in your mind the swing of a pendulum, you can influence both the direction and the intensity of the swing. Um, and they were actually like able to like empirically show that um, by measuring the distance of the swing in the pictures. And I found that really, really interesting. And actually, there was another study that I read, um, not related to pendulums specifically, but about subconscious and conscious movement in relation to, it was mostly about Ouija boards, but they did talk about pendulums a little bit. And they essentially found that conscious movement occurs at a faster rate than subconscious, which I also found really interesting because that kind of explains maybe the movement that we see with pendulum is this like gradual start to the swinging versus like a very fast and quick movement that you would expect if you were to like put your like intentionally move your arm in one direction or another. In fact, that was the test they used. They essentially said, okay, don't move your arm at all. Consciously move your arm. And then the last like, experimental group was move your arm or it was like move your arm it was like there's some force pushing against it and so they found that that like subconscious movement was much slower than the conscious movement. I found that was really really interesting in relation to the idea motor effect and again I'll link all these articles below but yeah what are your thoughts on that this is why I don't trust <laughs> because I do think they're so influenced by our subconscious um and even like I know people say that you can attach it to like a jar or to something else that's not yourself to try and like decrease all of these things but at the same time, you still there are still external factors. Like at literally someone walking past your doorway will lead to like oscillations in the floor and that'll affect like even if it's sitting on a table, like all of those things have an effect on the way the pendulum moves. And so I think it's really, really hard to say, like to definitively say, yes, this is due to the divination, divine interference, whatever. Um, nearly impossible and I just don't trust it. I definitely agree. Like one of the interesting things that I did in one of my classes, we used a galvanic skin response device, which it basically measures. My assumption is that it measures, not assumption, but my understanding is that it measures kind of like the tensing and relaxing of your skin. And it's like what people use in like lie detector tests. 
So, I mean, obviously, so those are are not super great, but there is like, there's like a baseline you can tell if someone is stressed. (laughs) Um, So like I had a device and it was like really fun. It like made a bunch of funny things if like you were super tense and I would have people wear it and I actually had them wear it while they were like playing a game that someone else had made and you'd watch the thing like get higher and higher and higher depending or even sometimes like they would just be sitting there talking and my teacher like just to see what would happen. And like, they knew, they knew that he was going to say this. My professor was like, you failed the class. And like, they knew that he was joking. They knew that he was going to say it. And their like thing just like went through the roof. So like that, even that's like a very, very like small amount of movement, just like your skin tensing and relaxing. And it would like, it was very mind blowing to see it like mapped out as dramatically as like I had mapped it out. Um, and just even something that you know, even if you you know in like your brain something doesn't mean that your body knows it, which is why I think pendulums can be hard and you can very easily fall into the trap of like too much divination because it's confirmation bias. Yeah, I'm just gonna lay that out there. I think it's confirmation bias. Like even if you're like, oh well, I didn't actually want that answer. I'm you sure? Because sometimes like we know we know we need an answer so sometimes even if it's not the answer we think that we want we actually know that it's what's best for us like you can't trick your body you can trick your mind but you can't trick your body like tara comes into play too right like tara is a good way to like subconsciously kind of try and figure out what you actually want like that's why i use it for guidance right because it's like i don't know what i'm doing and it's like well i, I kind of do what know like what i need to do slash what i want to do but like I can verbalize it. So having the cards act as like an intermediary can be really helpful in trying to figure that out. Right. I mean, there was this interview with someone um, who was like a, a psychic reader and she didn't go into it being like a psychic. She basically she realized that what people wanted to hear was a story. And so she was basically giving people advice but presenting it in a story. And so it's like, if you tell someone, oh, you should break up with him, then it's like, well, they're gonna be like, hey, you can't tell me what to do. But if you tell it in the story format, you can help them come to their own conclusion. So I don't know. That's also why I don't really use a lot of divination to communicate with the divine, because a lot of it feels like me figuring out my own stuff and like what I actually want. Which, like, you know, one could argue that there is a hand of the divine in that as well. But yeah, it's like humans process things through story. That's why I think ritual is so important and so powerful. So it makes sense that when our life is laid out in story format, it's easier for us to make the jump and come to this conclusion, not just in our mind, but with our heart and our body. Yeah, I think with with pendulums, it kind of comes down to how you think it works. Um, I personally cannot divorce the um, idea of the idiomotor effect from the pendulum's movement, and that's why I would never use one. But I don't know, maybe somebody who believed it was kind of more spirit-driven feels that it's quite a separate experience and they get value from that. It kind of all comes down to your your personal use for it, I suppose. So, um, yeah, it's it, if, if you find it useful, I don't, I don't want to, like rain on your parade i just think that it's important to bear in mind that there are lots of subconscious factors that can influence it so um i was looking into basically how well does divination work in terms of and how can we test it in a scientific way and this was quite difficult to look into um firstly because not there's not that many studies out there testing divination so most of the ones i found were on astrology so that, that that's what we'll be discussing today and It's quite hard also to design studies that test divination because we need a highly specific outcome or hypothesis to test. And often with divination, that's not really what we're getting. I mean, yes, we've mentioned there are yes-no methods, but more of the methods that uh, we've been talking about, like tarot and astrology, they, they give you slightly more broad, nuanced kind of symbolic answers, which are quite difficult to formulate into a hypothesis. So um, I found a few different ones that I'd like to discuss with you guys. Some of them, which were looking into the statistics, were suggesting that um, astrological effects were actually the product of a poor statistical analysis in the first place. So, for example, 
there was one in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology, and they looked into the um, number of hospital admissions for each astrological sign and then did a a chi-squared test. And they were like, oh, look, Pisces signs had more hospital admissions for heart failure, so they were more likely to have heart failure. But this is actually the wrong way to analyze these kind of data because you've you've found that you have a higher proportion in one sign and then you do the statistical test that um, amplifies your type of error so when you actually adjust that to the um, chance of the whole population the um, particular Pisces sign doesn't have a higher chance of heart failure at all so I think it's just a really good example of why we have to bear in mind statistics and the, the, the role of statistics and um, how they can be misused to speak to the role of divination. But yeah, I wanted to talk to you guys about two famous studies. Um, the first one is quite a controversial one um, on natal charts by Sean Carlson. It's from 1985, and I'll go through the study design first to sort of explain how they did this. And it's a little bit confusing, I'll be honest. But the basic thesis is that they want to test whether your natal chart affects your personality. And the whole selling point behind the study is that it was double blind. So in this study, they have two parts. So they've got astrologers and they've got volunteers. With the volunteers, they were presented with their own natal chart and two other natal charts from a group of volunteers. They had to rank, so one and two, which which natal chart they believe belonged to them. So if the results are truly random, the authors would expect them to choose the correct chart a third of the time. Um, So for the astrologers, they were given a natal chart, and then they were also given um, a, an objective personality assessment. For this, they used something called the California Personality Scale, because the astrologers agreed to that, and it was kind of coherent with their own methods. So they had the natal chart of an individual, the objective, quote, personality assessment. Then they were given two other personality assessments, and they had to rank the two assessments which most closely matched the natal chart they'd been given. Um, and basically... It's the same thing. Random chance would predict a correct selection a third of the time, whereas the astrologers predicted that astrologers said, well, we predict that we'll be able to get the correct answer half the time or more. They also confusingly had test and control groups, although they didn't compare the test and control groups. They compared the chance with random chance, which is a little bit confusing. But long story short, the astrologers did not perform better than chance. They they, they basically got 30% or less. And likewise, the test participants did not get better than chance either, but they struggled to choose their own objective personality as well. So maybe you could say they don't have very good insight into their own personality, so it doesn't really matter. There'd be various critiques of these kind of studies, but uh, like like twin studies, for example, most follow-ups haven't found decent results. But I was just kind of curious what you guys thought about this study, whether you thought it was a good design, what you think it shows us about astrology, whether it's even useful to test using a study like this i yeah i really actually enjoyed the study and I, I enjoyed it for a couple of reasons the first was that it incorporated both astrologers and also scientists i think that's really smart because it kind of gets around the whole debate of like scientists saying oh the astrologer only studies are biased and astrologers saying oh the scientist only studies are also biased because the scientists aren't looking at the charts from like an astrological point of view so i really appreciated that they had both what I find very interesting is that the astrologers didn't perform above 30%, um, that whole random chance, which I think just indicates to me that it's not, and maybe you could argue that not having more history of a person or like some kind of relationship with them might hinder the overall process. And I think the other probably biggest argument against the study is that, because like, you know, when you take a personality test and you answer it, but like, you might not answer it honestly. <laughs> Like, this happens to me sometimes. I'll, like, be taking one of the tests for, like, whatever, you know, stupid reason. And I don't answer – like, I said a question and I'm like, oh, I want to answer this. But, like, I don't know if that's actually true. Like, how biased am I being with this answer? And so it is possible that people answering, like, the the personality test weren't completely honest. And so then it skewed the astrological trying to pair the two for the astronomers or the um, astrologers. So I think that could be a valid critique. I also think it's interesting that they compared like chance versus random chance. Um, That's uh, interesting. Like I understand why they did it that way and it makes sense in the study, but it would have been more interesting, I think, to compare like a control versus uh, uh, an actual experimental group. But the weird thing is they they had a test and control group and they didn't compare the test and control group. And I'm confused as to why they did that. 
and yeah. I, I don't yeah I don't really understand but I think that's been one of the major critiques of the study over the years because the groupings were a bit strange yeah that was like my thing when I read the paper I was like you have the control group and you have the test group but like you didn't compare them at the end I was like I read the conclusion and I went back and I read the methods and I was like wait, <laughs> something's missing. Yeah, so that is, I think that's a very valid critique. But overall, I really enjoyed the study. I think it was well put together. I like that they consulted both scientists and astrologers. Um, I wish that more of that happened with regards to like spiritual studies. It was a very interesting one. If you are curious about it, I highly recommend reading it. We will link it below. Apologies to any statisticians as well who um, I have offended. I'm about to offend by explaining the next study. So the other one was much more recent. It was in 2020. And it was investigating whether astrological compatibility could determine marriage outcomes. So this is maybe a bit easier to test than um, personality traits because personality is so variable and um, quite, I guess, maybe not so easy to test statistically. And they, were, they used this really handy database um, in Sweden using six... 66,000 individuals and they just use the sun signs and I think this is because this is um, all the information they had I'm sure astrologers would probably say that um, okay having sun signs alone is not going to be enough to um, look at compatibility you might need Venus etc but this is the information they had and rather than using a singular astrological system because as you know there's many different types and Vedic and Hellenistic and all of those they actually took the top 500 compatibility rankings and they aggregated them into a combined rating system. And they made like six different models, which is kind of an interesting approach. And so then what they did is they used t-tests to determine whether the actual compatibility, um, which is measured by whether they got people got married, versus astrologically predicted number of marriage um, eventuated. So in the groups which you predict to be compatible, do you see more marriages than you expect due to random chance or not? Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then the other thing was um, they, they looked at how likely these couples were to divorce. So they used something called the Cox Proportional Hazards Test. And they say, okay, did we see a greater likelihood of divorce than we'd expect in a normal population if, if we had, for example, an unfavorable match that were married? The answer is no. <laughs> Actually, the number of matches which were unfavorable um, that stayed married was slightly overrepresented, or that wasn't statistically significant. So there were um, there was a suggestion that more compatible couples experienced a lower risk of divorce but this was such a low amount it was like two percent that it wasn't statistically significant and overall the study didn't support the idea of astrological compatibility but I think astrologers would probably debate the actual methods here and what do you think about this study do you, do you think it's interesting useful not useful why did they spend the money on this what do, what do you think it's it's an interesting idea um I think I think compatibility is a really hard thing to try and define i mean we have we have people who who try and do like matching services um who try to do compatibility just based on like mundane things and it probably has like roughly the same um success rate i would imagine so i kind of think that's an interesting thing to try and take on um i did read the study and i don't know i'm not convinced by the whole compatibility thing like you know, by astrology. And I think the study did a good job at like showing the statistical like rates between like astrologically um, compatible people and divorce rates versus like mundane and divorce rates and all of that. I don't know though. I just, I feel like there's so much variance between why people get together, why people stay together, why people decide to get divorced. Like, especially when you think about like, I have a friend who, so we're talking, it's just recently actually. And he mentioned that like he and his wife have been married and like they've had kids and they lived a really good life together but like they as a couple don't feel like it's pertinent to stay together anymore like their kids are growing up they're you know living their own lives and you could say that they you know quote unquote fell out of love or they just like don't really want to be committed to one another anymore and so like they're gonna get a divorce and it's not because like they hate each other it's not because they weren't necessarily compatible like they were clearly they lived a good life together um but they just like wanted to like go their separate ways so I think it's hmm, yeah like that's the thing there's so many variables for not only getting together but also the idea for divorce that I think it's astrologically I think it's hard to pinpoint um which makes that study a little bit yeah <laughs> for me I thought it was really funny um because there that was like um oh well we we could have confounded the results because people might believe in astrology and that might make them more likely to stay together however we conducted this study in sweden and not very many swedes believe in astrology <laughs> i don't know i just found that really funny like the, the great, logic. great logic yeah what would you think though um 
I know too much about attachment theory to like <laughs> think that one could argue that like the compatibility is about if you were at your healthiest mental self, what would likely be the most compatible? I could see an argument for that, but like there's just so many mental health factors at play. There's so many personal histories at play. There's so many attachment theory stuff at play. I just think it's silly, <laughs> to be honest. I've seen people where they're like, oh, you're a whatever. Like, I can't date you. And I'm just like, what? What? And oh, I can't date you because you're too obsessed with astrology. You think it can work? Um, I mean, it's like I do. I do want to say I think there are merits to astrology beyond pop modern astrology, but I don't think compatibility is one of them. I think it more has to do with mental health and personal history than it does with like when you when and where you were born. I think you would at least have to look at the whole chart, right? Like I think this was just sun signs, so I'm sure a lot of people would um, protest. Yeah, that's really. Well, and it's interesting, too, when we talk about sun sign, a lot of people actually relate more to their rising sign, which, like, makes sense than their sun sign. And when you read things like the, you know, zodiac, like, whatever it is for the day, all of that, like, pop astrology stuff that nobody should put any stock in. But typically, the rising sign is what people relate to more than their sun sign, which indicates why I've never felt like a Pisces. They're always like, you're so emotional. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Same. I'm a cancer. And everyone's like, cancers are so whatever moody. And I'm just like, I am like an intellectual robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. apparently I have a cap rising. So that makes sense from what right, I exactly. It's like, that's interesting too with the sun signs. Like, I don't know if that's necessarily the most, I'm going to use the word based here, but <laughs> that sounds so like, oh, it sounds so awful. Um <laughs> But it's definitely not, like, the best way, I think, to do it. You could also, like, your moon sign is what um, allegedly, like, rules your... I don't... Okay, listen, I'm not an astrology person, so, like, don't come for me. Um, but your moon sign is what controls, like, your emotions and how you um, deal with, like, kind of the inward, like, your, in your inner world. And so I feel like your moon sign and your rising sign would be a better compatibility test than your sun sign like personally so yeah I, I agree with you honey I think only using the sun sign only gives you half of the story which might have also kind of distorted the results a little bit yeah like I don't want the message of this to, to be like we disproved astrology science right like that's not the message from this but I think maybe it's it's really hard to investigate and maybe not useful to investigate with scientific methods because you're really looking at really highly individualized readings and not you know, on a kind of population level scale yeah, and they they use, so they're looking at compatibility, but did they look at the the Venus sign of these people? Because that's the other thing. Like Venus is is about relationships. If you were going to look at compatibility in astrology, I would expect you to look at the Venus. No, they just use the sun sign. I think because their argument was well, in most like horoscopes and newspapers and things, you just look at the sun mm. sign, which is fair enough, I suppose. But so I think they're looking at kind of pop astrology specifically. But you're right. Like I think a lot of astrologers would take issue with it and probably would want to use Venus. This is why they should have consulted with astrologers like the others that they did. <laughs> anyway, super interesting. You, yeah, I was reading through those articles and I was like, this is really fascinating. I don't even know that like, people would do research on that kind of stuff. All right, then let's just wrap up with final thoughts on divination. If anybody has anything they haven't mentioned so far in the episode. Yeah, mostly I just want to say like, even if there were all these studies saying, you know, this isn't effective in this context, isn't effective in that, doesn't mean that we're trying to say that it's not useful to you or it's not a useful tool. Like I think all of us use it in some capacity, particularly for me, I use it in a spiritual context and I find it um, that the symbolism is, is very, very, very useful. Mm -hmm. So yeah, don't come away from this episode thinking that we're, we're trying to disprove it. It's more explore its usefulness and its role. Yeah, I I think the fact that we all use it, despite being more kind of scientifically minded individuals, should tell you that we still believe it, despite what the studies have shown. So definitely don't leave this episode thinking that we're trying to disprove anything, because we're totally not. I use tarot, you know, daily. I also, I've had like astrology readings with friends, and like, it's been spot on like kind of freaky like freaky spot on I this might be like TMI but um I did a reading with a friend and we nailed the specific time the date and time that I had my first therapy session like it was wild um and that was before like I I didn't put much stock into astrology like when I went into this reading and even before so I was just like that's a little creepy <laughs> I'm not gonna lie so like I do believe that these things have stock um it's just as to how it happens, like, I don't know. I think it is mostly, like, subconscious, but 
yeah, again, I think the fact we all use them indicates that we believe them to, you know, a certain extent. And just like everything in magic, it doesn't necessarily need to be explained. You can just believe it for the sake of believing it, and that's enough. I mean, honestly, I think trying to prove or disprove divination doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me at all. Just because it's like, it's so, it's storytelling. And whether that story is divinely inspired or subconsciously inspired doesn't really make a difference, in my opinion. You know, like I used to get really worried when people, when I would like, I'd hate like doing tarot in public or like in, if someone was visiting, because I'd be like, there, they'd be like, oh, did you know that a study said? Um, <laughs> and I just, I don't know, I stopped caring about what it meant to other people. What, the only thing that mattered is what it meant to me. And that is based. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag based. Well, that wraps it up for this week. So we will see you next time. Before we go, just a couple of things. So you can follow us on Instagram at Test Tapes and Cauldrons. Um, we post every single week, typically little hints about what the next episode will be that comes out on Friday. We also have a YouTube channel now if you haven't subscribed. It's just called Test Tapes and Cauldrons, same name as the podcast. Um, go check it out, subscribe. I think our first 10 episodes are up on there. I think Typically yeah. we're about a week, be- a week behind, um, so they're not fully up to date, but if you've missed any of the other ones and you want to listen on a different platform, you can do that on YouTube. And then finally, if you haven't left us a review on Apple Podcasts and you would like to, that would really help us out, um, like with the algorithm, you know, all of that. We need to do one of those Twitter posts where we're like, you know, algorithm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I also, I forgot to mention this the past few times, but I also have a YouTube channel now. And it's very good. It's um, very good. It, uh, yeah, it's thank really you. Good. Fell the Blythe just fell and let's space if you type that in you'll find it i started doing a thing on um i'm doing like hellenism 101 right now uh, i'll probably branch out into like other weird things like natural dying and magic um so who knows <laughs> yeah go check out bell's channel too um we'll i'll link her in this description um so you can find that pretty easily but yeah so that's it um for this week and we'll see everybody next time bye everybody